All right, everybody. Well, welcome uh, to our CMMC uh, five-part series on going over the 17 domains. Uh, we appreciate everybody that has followed us on this journey that the last uh, four webinars, we hope they've been beneficial to you. This is the last in a five-part series. Uh, this is being recorded. Um, today, we'll be covering the last three domains. Um, we hope everybody uh, is experienced is, is best as possible and we ask that make it interactive. So within the chat room or within Slido, uh, if you have any questions, please submit those. If we don't get to them, we will follow up uh, and uh, submit those questions back to you with an answer uh, if we're not able to cover them today. Um, there's no sales pitch. This is purely to share essential knowledge, insight, and maybe bring a little fun to a dry topic. Uh, and I'm counting our, on our panelists to make that fun. So um, introducing our panelists today, we have Amira Aman, uh, Vice Chair C3PAO Stakeholder Forum and President of Curary uh, uh, Solutions. Welcome, Amira. We also have uh, Eric Lunsford, uh, Independent Consultant, Cybersecurity, uh, CMMC, and NIST 171. Welcome, Eric. And then we also have with us Kyle, President, uh, CISO, and Head of Services of KLC uh, Consulting. And then David uh, Bedard, a CMMC uh, Registered Practitioner at KTL Solutions. Welcome. I appreciate all of you guys. All right, well, what we're gonna do, um, we're covering three different sectors today, and I'm gonna go over those with you guys really quick. Um, we're covering CMMC uh, requirements of, of domains under level three, and get to the next slide. Um, really quick, wanna go over the difference for those that are just joining us for the first time about CMMC compliance. Um, some of the core differences between CMMC compliance uh, and NIST 800-171 is that first, there, there are more controls to be uh, considered. There's 110 in 14 families in NIST 800. There's 130 controls across 17 domains to be at a level three. Methods of compliance with NIST 800 could be achieved on your own or with help with self-attestation. Uh, with CMMC level three, there is no self-attestation. You have to get certified. Um, and uh, within that, you have to pass all of the areas. You have to have proof of compliance. And it's in either pass or fail with CMMC. There is no submitting poems and, and doing uh, improvement. Either you're doing all 130 controls or you're not. So um, a, a bit of a change compared to what you're used to if you've been compliant with NIST 800-171. All right, uh, with that out of the way, uh, the three areas we're gonna be covering today, the final of the 17 domains is systems and communication protection, systems and information integrity, and media protection. And we'll kick off with uh, the first area, system and communication uh, protection. So I'm gonna read off one of the first uh, questions in that to our panelists and let them have at it. So uh, this one goes to you, Eric. Um, how can you validate the implementation of cryptographic mechanisms? 
<clears throat> okay. Uh, okay. So David, um, we can use the NIST website. Um, it provides a, a crypto uh, model valid, uh, validation uh, program, which is called a CMVP. Uh, so this is a, this is a resource that NIST provides, um, which is a great resource so that you can go in there and you can validate um, the cryptography that, that that mechanism you want to use. Um, this, you, you have many other um, crypto documents. So, you know, NIST is going to also provide publications and documentation on uh, DES, triple DES, um, AES, um, uh, other kinds of of uh, encryption, um, as well as algorithms that, that, that the NIST, you know, they provide this, which is great, great information, great resources. Uh, also, you have your FIPS 140 TAC2. <clears throat> um, so, so those are some of, the, some of the important resources that you have. And of course, using that uh, CMVP uh, to validate um, crypto mechanisms. Thank you for that, Eric. Uh, any other? Contributions from our panelists on that question. Yeah. Um, so, in a lot of cases, this is a research question. Uh, you're responsible for using FIPS 140 2 validated cryptography, as Eric mentioned. Uh, whenever you need to protect CUI in storage or in transit, right? Um, Good news is uh, you can protect it at one layer, which would mean that you don't need to protect it at different layers. So for example, if you are moving uh, CUI data between say an application server and a application on your computer, uh, you could either encrypt that data between the server and your computer, right? Or you could use a VPN, which is one of the authorized uh, products in the, the NIST catalog, right? Uh, so you just need one layer of FIPS cryptography to protect the data. You don't need every single layer uh, down the stack to be encrypted. Great, appreciate it. Next question, I'm gonna uh, throw this right back at you, Amira. Um, I have an antivirus program that blocks bad websites by URL. Is that DNS filtering? Okay, so um, so in the systems and communications protection domain, there's a requirement to use DNS filtering. And DNS filtering is, um, let's go back to what DNS is, right? That's where on the internet, we're using IP addresses, which are numbers, right? It's this long string of numbers. And those are very hard for people to memorize. Uh, but things like amazon.com or facebook.com, those are pretty easy for people to memorize, right? So DNS is that process of typing in words like, you know, cnn.com uh, and having that, that word translate to an IP address on the internet so you can go to get that resource. Um, a DNS filter will stop you from resolving the IP addresses of bad domains, right? That's the purpose, 
so if if cnn.com for some reason if they got hacked and they were doing malicious activities from their website uh, if you subscribe to a dns filter when you try and go to cnn.com it would actually block you from getting there but it would do it by preventing you from resolving the ip address right which is pretty cool because it works throughout your entire computer um, there's a misconception where you can get antiviruses that will protect your browser, right? And prevent you from going to bad websites. Uh, but they use a different mechanism than DNS. They, they would check the website address against say a whitelist, right? But it doesn't protect the underlying systems on your computer, such as, you know, if you opened up a command prompt and tried to go to uh, a bad domain, it wouldn't protect you there. So that's the difference between antivirus and a DNS filter. Got it, thank, thank you very much. Uh, this one's gonna go to Kyle. Kyle, it, it seems like if I have a firewall, I take care of most of the SC practices. Is this a good assumption? Um, I will say it take a lot of uh, practice. It will meet quite a bit of uh, practices, but it's probably not 100%. Um, and also, if you have a firewall, you probably want to make sure that you have a more next, more like a next generation firewall, something that's more advanced that can do network segmentation. It has the, the VPN and also most importantly, have to be uh, again in the FIPS 140-2, you know, go to that validation website on the NIST and to see if they are listed there, because if they are not listed there, you they are probably not, you know, FIPS. They might be working towards uh, FIPS 140-2, but they they don't have the validation yet. So you need to make sure that you use a firewall that's FIPS validated, and the uh, next generation have a lot more features. Can actually take care of the practices. Yeah, I think that's all. Be where we'll go. Great, appreciate that answer. Next question is going off to David. Under SC. Dot three dot one eighty three. It says deny network communications traffic by default and allow network communications traffic by exception, i.e. deny all permit by exception. Can you go into further details around what this actually means, David? Yeah, I mean, when you really look at deny all kind of, it's kind of like going to that exclusive country club, um, you know, if you're wearing a t-shirt and jeans, um, you're gonna get denied because they're dress code policy. So, you know, it, it's really a matter of sitting there and looking at the, at the traffic that's coming in to see that it is making sure that it's meeting your exception list. Um, but the challenge that I see a lot around this is around being able to document the business needs uh, because many companies, they already have kind of a, a deny list and an exception list on everything, but they don't really have this documented in a way that it's kind of like that uh, your child coming up to you and always saying, why? Well, no, you can't have that candy. Well, why? That's because it's going to rot your teeth. You got to give a reason on why you're actually providing that exception. Uh, and without being able to provide that exception reason, you're not fully meeting the intent. You might be meeting the technical control, but not the actual process control. Great, I appreciate that. Um, last question for this area. Oh, we might get one or two more in because it's 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 a big, big domain. Um, Eric, what resources are available to establish and manage 
cryptographic keys for cryptography employed in an organization? Okay, uh, good question. So, so uh, again, we're talking about NIST publications, um, also, you know, using that in support of the CMMC. So uh, we have uh, a couple of pub uh, publications come to mind. Um, you have the NIST 856 and the 57. So, so what are these? These are about, uh, you know, key establishment, uh, best practices. They're about key management um, requirements. So I would say you have, you have those two documents right there for, for some, you know, some, some good, you know, practices to establish those things, you know, for your key management, encryption, stuff like that. But again, also you have those other documents that I've already talked about, which, um, you know, there, there's a lot of them. So, you know, take the time to, to research those NIST documents and you're gonna find that um, <clears throat> NIST covers, you know, uh, from, from the FIPS 140 uh, to, to all of those different types of algorithms and AES, and, and, and a lot of those other standards that are required. Um, so, so those are basically uh, some good resources and uh, things that you can, you can use uh, for employing uh, the encryption in your environment. Yeah, just to add that, if you are small companies, you probably can just uh, store the keys into like a file folder, encrypted file folder or something. But if you are a larger enough company, you probably want to employ some of the key management tools. Great. Thanks, gentlemen. Um, this one going to Kyle. Uh, do I really need to get solutions that are FIPS 140-2 validated, or can I just get FIPS 140-2 compliant solutions? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually see one of the comments made to the chat as well, talking about this. Um, so, so you, yes, you actually need to make sure that you get the FIPS 140-2 validated solution have to be listed because that's, you know, assessor, first thing they will do is like, show me the evidence. If this solution is actually on the NIST, you know, FIPS 140-2 validated list. If the solution is not validated, then it's not, it, it, it's, you are not going to pass the control of the practice. So yes, you will need to make sure that you get the FIPS 140-2 validated solution. Um, many companies, they are going to tell you, hey, we actually have the FIPS 140-2 compliant solution, or yeah, we are working towards the validation, but if it's not on the list, then yeah, it's, you are not going to pass that control. Thank you. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Mary. Yeah, and if I can just kind of make sure you guys heard what Kyle said, um, the the solutions are approved by the product, so it's not just a little cryptographic algorithm like you know AES right by itself. It's always the cryptographic algorithm as implemented in a full product, right? Like the Microsoft Office Suite, for example. Um, so you need to make sure that you have that product authorized and it's the correct version, and you're using the cryptographic suite that uh, is, is evaluated. Great, appreciate it. All right, um, I'm gonna get ready to go on to system and information integrity. Was there any other last comments for uh, system and communication? Um, just uh, one thing to kind of make comment about uh, when it comes to system and communication, I, I deal with a lot of small and medium-sized businesses. 
not so much that I see it on the larger organizations. They pretty much have this lockstep for administrative uh, purposes. So, you know, there, there is that separation of functionality from system management functionality that a lot of the times goes unchecked in smaller to medium-sized businesses where an administrator might actually be using their administrator account for day-to-day -day activities. Um, that's not allowed under, you know, CMMC uh, with regards to, you have to separate that actual functionality. You shouldn't be using your admin account to do email or internal communications on a regular basis. It should be strictly there for administrative purposes. Great, thanks, David. All right, let's jump into second domain system and information integrity. Uh, first question goes out to Amira. If there is no CUI in email, do we still need to do the spam and sandboxing practices? I would argue that if your uh, in scope system, you know, whether it be an enclave or a regular work uh, computer, if that system has access to email, then whatever email it's connecting to needs to have those safeguards listed in the system integrity which would be uh, spam, forgery protection, and sandboxing, right? So those, those three items aren't specific to protection of CUI. They're trying to prevent your computer from getting attacked via email. Uh, so any email that you connect to with that computer should be protected. Got it, thanks. All right, um, next question. This one's going to David. Under SI.2.214, monitor system security alerts and advisories and take action in response. How does someone go about meeting this requirement, David? Yeah, you know, I see a lot of uh, a lot of folks that um, you know it, it's a very simple solution to kind of put out there. I mean, it's really a matter of subscribing to either RSS feeds or you know email distributions meetings to get, you know, to, to, to find out about the latest vulnerabilities. I mean, there's various sources out there from dark reading, US certs, Krebs on security, ISAC, et cetera. Um, so it's really a matter of using your existing technology, whether you're using as far as Google alerts or, or Outlook and, you know, as far as subscribing to these RSS feeds. So you're able to get that information and take action on if a vulnerability is present that, you know, is announced that you should be taking it or addressing. Appreciate that. And I think Kyle, you had some contributions to make into good sources around this. You're on mute, Kyle. Yep. <laughs> I'm on mute. There we go. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I think what David actually said was all good resources. Um, yeah, I don't think I have anything else to add other than, you know, Twitter could be used. Uh, it, it could be a pretty, pretty nice uh, tool as well. Obviously, depends on if your company actually block it or not. Right. But for me, I actually have it on my phone. So if there are some alerts that come out, they will usually they come out pretty quick on the Twitter. And most of the most of the you know large companies and the US CERT, CISA, they all have the Twitter accounts that you can subscribe to. Great. Thanks. 
Um, Eric, you're up. Uh, what type, um, since we have to do scans under system and information integrity, what type of scans are required and what is the best solution? Oh, okay. So when we're talking about scans, um, especially for your environment, when we talk about best solutions, you know, I think it's really going to depend on, you know, what is required for that company. You know, what, what's going on in the environment of the, comp the company. So, so maybe the company needs to have some kind of network intrusion device that's scanning their network. Maybe they need to have a host intrusion uh, device, you know, scanning that, that host. Um, also, you know, when we look at CMMC and NIST, we look at vulnerability scanning, uh, you know, scanning software, uh, firmware. And, and when we find, uh, or when we, we scan uh, those systems and those devices, um, you know, what is the best solution? Well, I think it would really uh, come down to a combination of those scans um, on those devices uh, within your environment, you know, depending on what best suits your your organizational requirements. So also using um, resources like, um, you know, Dave and Kyle already mentioned, um, like US CERT, where you're going to be able to get notified uh, through emails on alerts and vulnerabilities. Well, you're gonna be able to look up those vulnerabilities on uh, common uh, vulnerability databases and you'll be able to find like, you know, what version of the software or application is and what are those vulnerables that are applicable to those and then how to mitigate, um, you know, those vulnerabilities. So then you're gonna go into like configuration management which we've discussed earlier and you're gonna apply those patches and those updates to um, you know, mitigate those vulnerabilities. So you're going to fix those things that you identify quickly in your environment uh, by, by using those things, which, you know, David and Kyle already brought up, such as, you know, using US CERT as a reference that identifies, you know, those vulnerabilities and alerts and things like that. So when it comes to monitoring, um, you know, your, your uh, devices, you also want to look at some things like what Amir had mentioned. You know, she, she was talking about um, you know, controlling for like, you know, spam and other things like, like that. So, so on those endpoint, some of those endpoint devices, you know, you might want to have some kind of a, a proxy server. You might want to have some kind of, um, you know, spam blocker, uh, things like that. So, so all of those are good solutions, but for, a, for an overall best solution, it's really going to come down to your organizational requirements. Got it. Thank you, Eric. Um... All right, the next question, we're gonna throw this one to David. Under SI.2.217, identify unauthorized use of organizational systems. Question is, Have I have an intrusion detection system and or an intrusion prevention system. Is that enough? You know, that, that, that's really a great question. I mean, the, the control really feeds off of various other controls out there. Um, everything from access controls, audit and accountability, identity, you know, identity and authentication. Uh, many small organizations, medium-sized organizations, even large organizations struggle to kind of deal with that, uh, that trifecta of, of information gathering. Um, so when I look at this and I try to explain this to individuals, I, I kind of explain it to them of most people get Amazon delivered, okay? Um, I have Amazon delivering to my house and they have access into my garage to drop off the package. 
So Amazon is giving that delivery driver a one-time access code. So that's your access you know, controls. Uh, but what about the other visibility or the authentication or you know, identification? So because they are an Amazon employee, they're authenticated in, they're getting that one-time access code. But guess what? I also have my, my ring and, you know, set up as far as on my doorbell, so I could see everything in my front yard. But that, lo and behold, I also have that Ring camera in my garage. So when I see them in there, um, I, I know who they are. I, I know when they dropped it off. I can go back to the record with Amazon. I can pull all that data. So in essence, I have that uh, you know audit and accountability measure of knowing when, who, what, why, and and how they did something without having the ability to kind of pull and correlate all that data together, it's almost like you only have two thirds of the puzzle with, you know, as far as an intrusion perfection, you know, prevention, or you know, as far as uh, any other system in there, it kind of, everything has to tie together with kind of a centralized log management system. So it's not just, you know, just that one requirement, it ties into multiple requirements under there. Great, appreciate it. Any other contributions? Yeah, and I will say, you know, other than the intrusion detection prevention, there's also the EDR systems that, um, so, so I think there are some EDR, there are some management, you know, detection and response type of uh, so, uh, solutions out there. So with the EDR, it's just an example, if you have a intrusion or ransomware attacks, then you will be able to keep uh, trace back to say exactly how and when does that ransomware come into your environment and uh, be able to actually trace all the way back to detect. And uh, once you find out what's going on, then it will be a lot easier for you to remediate the problem. Great, thanks Kyle. I'm gonna throw this one up. Uh, it's a free for all, jump ball. So whoever <laughs> wants to grab this, um, you know, SI, you know, .218.219.220 all deal with email dealing with spam, forgery, and sandboxing. Um, what are some of the solutions you're seeing companies use to handle this requirement? Uh, I work with multiple clients that, you know, they're coming off of various solutions out there, whether it's Barracuda, whether it's Proofpoint, whether they don't have an actual solution in place, um, you know, Microsoft shop, obviously. Uh, so, you know, from that standpoint, if they don't have anything, they don't have a preference, they're using Defender for Office 365 at that point. Um, I just really go from the standpoint of uh, when I talk with a client, do you have a solution that you're comfortable with? That, that's really what it comes down to. Do you have a, a solution that will take care of the requirement and a solution that you can use, that you know how to use, that you, you, you can quickly identify any issues that are going on and to make the resolutions. The, um, so spam and uh, spoofing protection, those are well known, you know, pretty much every email system can do them. Uh, but the sandboxing is something that very few email systems can do, right? And it, for email, sandboxing generally comes in two forms. It comes in attachments and it comes in links, right? And basically for it to count as a sandbox, whatever system you're using has to have 
little virtual machines that pretend to be end user workstations, right? It might have an array, it might have Windows, MacBooks, it might have an Android OS, right? And it takes each of those systems and it tries to run all the links in your emails and it tries to execute all the attachments. And then it watches what happens, right? And if that little virtual machine suddenly grows horns and tries to start attacking all the other virtual machines, it knows that something was wrong in the attachment and it uh, blocks it, right? That's why sandboxing is so valuable because you don't need to know that there's a virus in it. You don't need to detect a signature. You watch the behavior of the little virtual machine to see what it does. Thank you, Amira. All right, um, before we get on to media protection, any other fine points anybody wants to contribute to this domain? All righty then. <laughs> um, let's get going into media protection. First question goes out to Eric. Eric, what if you lose a cell phone and the cell has CUI on it? <laughs> well, I guess you'd be as frustrated as losing your wallet. <laughs> so I guess with anything, um, you know, even if you misplace your TV remote, I mean, it's, it's, that's frustrating, and, and, but, but not as uh, detrimental to the, to the mission if, uh, if you have CUI on your cell phone, but you haven't applied those um, you know, encryption you know, protection uh, or requirements from the NIST and CMMC to that cell phone, because you know, you can have you can have CUI on your cell phone on portable devices. You can transport CUI, but there are regulations. There's policies. Um, the NIST uh, 800-124 is uh, mobile phone security. So you know that's going to provide a lot of information, uh, a lot of ways to safeguard your mobile device. And also there's other publications in NIST that, that's going to talk about, you know, again, bringing up the 140 TAC2 um, requirements, you know, for encryption and also other controls that are going to um, bring up that um, requirement to encrypt CUI data, whether it's at rest in transit or stored, whether it's on a cell phone, a hard drive, a thumb drive, or if it's even paper. Um, so that brings up a good point about just, you know, employing encryption mechanisms uh, on those devices so that if you do lose it or you misplace it, um, there is that protection. Now, what else does that bring up? Another good point, it brings up um, the data lifecycle or I'm sorry, CUI lifecycle. You know, you've got the creation of CUI to the disposal and destruction of CUI. So what do I mean? So that cell phone eventually will have to be disposed of properly and in, in accordance with you know, NIST and CMMC requirements. So in order to do that, uh, you've got to follow guidelines in the, uh, I think it's the NIST 88, which, which talks about um, you know, data wiping, destruction and accountability of that. So that's the other good point is that if you have encryption and you have some kind of software that allows you to wipe that data from that, that cell phone or that you know, device that you have, then that's a good 
protection and, and, and requirement to have in place uh, for any of the people in your company that's, that's transporting CUI on any device, especially mobile devices. And also it's a way, you know, uh, to sanitize that device before you, you know, if it's issued, before you turn it back in and reissue it to somebody else. So that should also be part of your policies and procedures. Appreciate that. And I think we've seen in the past in the news that sometimes hammers work really well for destroying uh, information on, on cell phones. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, yeah, I just wanted to kind of uh, add on Eric's point as well. Um, you know, if you are using a mobile device management solution, I mean, you really want to be able to push policy down to that mobile device in order to ensure policies are, are being followed. Something like, um, I do not want to have jailbroken devices able to access email on mobile devices. So if it's jailbroken and, you know, that, that, that mobile device is trying to connect to your email uh, for corporate email that is denied access by your access controls and policies. Um, and on the other side, the flip side, that if the device is lost or stolen, um, that you know, an organization through a mobile device management solution will also have the ability to remote wipe that device itself. Yeah, great. And just on that note, yeah, just on the side note, so your original question, what happened if you lost and uh, the phone is unencrypted and you don't even have the password? Then you probably want to activate your incident response plan. <laughs> gotcha. I'm going to take a question um, from the chat really quick. It says, is anyone willing to answer the conflict inherent in always requiring FIPS 140-2 validated solutions while also requiring patching for CVEs when said patching will invalidate the FIPS 140 uh, dash two validation. This specific issue is holding me up. So, uh, Matt Heck, uh, you you were you were with all of us in Heck right now, right? So, um, this is this is something that every cybersecurity person pulls out their hair uh, because there is a inherent conflict between those two requirements of having a FIPS validated version, which is very specific. And generally it's uh, something that was released two years ago or older because FIPS validation takes a long time to do or patching it to resolve critical vulnerabilities. Um, and the DOD to my knowledge has not said which one you should do, right? Uh, the DFAR cyber FAQ, which I'll put pop a link in in just a second, it does talk to that situation, you know, what do you do? And it says, this is a good use of a plan of action for a temporary deficiency. Um, and, you know, taking a risk managed approach. Now, that is a different use of a plan of action than what CMMC um, says is not allowable, right? So uh, the, this, the C3PO stakeholder forum uh, did vote on this topic, and uh, as a unofficial industry group, they said you should patch your critical vulnerabilities. And I did put a link to that position in the chat. Great, thanks for that. Someone also asked about sanitization. They said, I thought NIST sanitization used NSA standard, meaning pulverization or melting down of phones drives per the 800-88. Anybody wanna validate that? 
Kyle, do you want to go first? You know you want to go first. <laughs> Come on, um, Kyle. Yeah, so so NIST 800ADA, they talk about a lot of different type of uh, sanitize, sanitization. You know, even with uh, paper, you have to shred it to like a rice size, right? All the, all the if it's not $3,000 or more, it's not really a good shredder, right? So, yeah, so actually uh, NIST 800ADA actually go to the very extreme in terms of protecting and the shredding these inflammation. So, yeah, um, burning, yeah, that's <laughs> burning, melting, that's uh, all part of the 888, right? So, um, yeah, I think... I don't know if they actually specify in the CMMC saying like you have to use the 888, but um, you just say you have to destroy it to the way that it's CY is not coming back. Yeah, I, I looked into this myself and uh, the standard is NIST 888, um, which, is, which is tough because that's, that's the standard used for destruction of classified material so that even you know a nation state using a, an entire team of people with magnifying glasses can't reconstruct the data, um, and I think the, the the question was you know in regard to that a statement of well let's let's hit the mobile phone with a hammer um, yeah you're going to need to be more thorough than that if you want to pass your assessment uh, but you know that's the source right so go download that document type in 800-88 and look at it and it will tell you for each type of system and media, here's what you need to do. Uh, but yeah, it's it's tricky. Like Kyle said, shredders, <laughs> the ones that do what it says to do are $3,000 or more each. Yeah. Um, but, 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 it, but in this day and age, right? Who really, um, I mean, people are storing data in the cloud, right? So I think that uh, the when we, when we talk about data sanitization, uh, we need to really focus on the data that is not necessarily in the traditional backup tape or CD or, or even hard drive for that matter, right? You know, data is stored in the cloud. That is the whole pe purpose of this uh, CMMC. So uh, I think I think that is, you know, worth, uh, you know, maybe exploring or scratching a little more. Yeah, and I think to, to your point, when you're talking about the cloud, yeah, so how many backup do they have in the cloud by your cloud service providers? Yeah, that's a right. good question to ask your cloud service providers. And, and how, how is that media? How is that piece of data or information handled? Whether it's CUI or sensitive or intellectual property of the, of the organization, right? From creation to processing to storage to decommissioning, right? How is yeah. that, the, or how is the sensitive information throughout all of those phases uh, maintained, tagged, and destroyed? Uh, in a cryptographically secure manner, right? So, I mean, frankly, uh, all, you know, some of the requirements in NIST, uh, although they are very well intended, uh, you know, we really have to apply them to modern uh, technology, right? So, you know, the cloud computing and, and, and so on and so forth, so. Yeah, and uh, just, just to add another note is that I, I think it's important for you to document your process in terms of how you destroy that CUI information, right? Yes, if you yes. say 888, if you put it on your process, you better follow that 888. Totally, totally. Right? So all will come after you, right? <laughs> when we do the assessment, right? We'll come after you and say, okay, you claim you do this, you know, where is the practice, right? You have it on policy, where is the practice? Where is the maturity? Yeah. You know, those kind of things. So yeah, good just, point, right? 
Yeah, just an example. If you say, yeah, I burned my phone or burn my burn my files <laughs> burn my paper just like 800 uh, 888 the 888 is like burning is not good enough you have to actually bring it to a professional burner to actually give right. you a certificate so you you but, can't charter a plane and fly over the la palma volcano and just drop it into right. the volcano that's not sufficient yep. no you can't pop it in the microwave either so so a pro tip a pro tip on this sanitization thing is there are uh, companies that do it to 888 standards, right? They have the $100,000 shredders, the $200,000 pulverizers. And uh, for a fraction of that amount, they'll come by and pick up your media and get rid of it for you. And you can search GSA approved uh, shredder or media destruction and find a list of those companies. Yep. Yeah, I think like Iron Mountain would be an example of one that can can do that kind of thing. So right, and and also when they usually they will bring a truck, and uh, you can request if you want to shred on site. You know, some of these uh, they do have the equipment on the truck, and uh, they will shred everything on site, your yeah. paper or your hard drives, yeah. uh, and provide <laughs> you that certification of destruction. Yeah, and if to the extent that uh, we trust third parties to uh, to shred for us, right? We we also have to do due di due dil diligence, right? You know, just because we trust, you know, uh, the cleaning lady or the cleaning man that comes to our house doesn't mean we're gonna say we're gonna leave our you know expensive jewelry uh, all around the house, right? So you have to do your due diligence to at least do some some sanitization. There are software out there that will do a DOD a seven pass erase, right? Which is, in my opinion, uh, or you could even increase the uh, iterations. Uh, it is just as good as uh, spending uh, thousands, uh, you know, going to the local uh, decosa, right? To, uh, to, to get the data, data destroyed. So you have to do, you know, your own uh, and, and make sure that you've done some sanitize, sanitization before you hand it out, because frankly, you know, uh, technologies fail, right? People fail, right? Just because you, uh, you're paying somebody $5,000 to sh uh, shred a hard drive doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it would be shredded, right? It could be a mistake. It could be mislabeled, you know, disgruntled employee and, you know, those kind of things. Or you could always just click on the things you're not supposed to and get a 512-bit ransomware lockup. And that, that <laughs> that's, a that's, that's a good one. That's a good one, so, all right, um, this one goes to Kyle. Um, I still need to use USB because that's how I move some, in, some internally and, and to the factory floors. What can I do to protect the USBs? Yeah, so USB, unfortunately, yeah, some, some companies still, still need to use it because uh, transferring files from different networks, right? And uh, the better way to do it is to make sure that you store files encrypted on your USB. So, and it could be become a little bit more cumbersome to do it that way, right? But nowadays they do have USB that actually comes with a padlock uh, key. So you actually just punch in the keys and the combinations, then you will actually be able to unlock and uh, decrypt the USB so you can, just uh, let the people who actually need to use that USB actually know, you know, on the need to know basis, the combination. And if you actually punch in, I think some of these uh, USB devices, 
if you're punching in more than 10 times wrong combinations, it will self-destruct. So just like uh, Mission Impossible, right? no smoke, but uh, it will self-destruct. Um, so, so there are some of those uh, capabilities out there. Great. All right, let's do, um, this one's to David and then anybody else that wants to contribute after that. Under MP-3.124, control access to media containing CUI and maintain accountability for media during transport outside of control areas. Uh, question is, what is an area that companies should consider when tackling this control? Yeah, so, you know, back to uh, kind of what Eno said uh, in regards to verifying or validating or asking questions of your vendors. Um, you kind of need to do the same thing. Uh, you know, when, when media is being transported or leaving your area, um, media is going to be both digital and physical. Uh, digital, of course, is kind of on the forefront of most individuals' thought processes, but what about the paper? Um, you know, many organizations use the shredding company. Uh, what happens to the contents when it's handed over? How do you know when the documents have been shredded? What are your background checks on the individuals handling pickup? I mean, th these are really questions related to, you know, as far as vendor security risk management that you need to find out the information on. Do you have a chain of command? Do you have a authorization and a notification of when things are actually destroyed? Or are you just taking the word of your vendor that they're doing what they need to do. Anybody else? Well, you know, so when we talk about media, right? When we talk about data storage, right? My attitude from, you know, uh, dating back decades uh, is that uh, uh, if, if to the extent possible, right? Every output, every file, uh, every data set if possible, needs to be encrypted, right? So for example, if you and I are collaborating on a document or a project, uh, you know, we can, we can come up with some, some kind of uh, maybe encryption mechanism, right? Whether email-based encryption or, you know, primitive uh, method like uh, using password, right? To, to, to basically uh, secure the document. So, uh, you know, so worst case scenario, right, the document would, would fall in the wrong hands, you are at least protect it, right? So if the, me, if it, the medium containing the document is uh, uh, somehow finds itself uh, on eBay uh, without uh, any type of sanitization, or maybe, uh, you know, again, the, uh, the, the destruction company forgot to, uh, or the, the technology failed, you know, you pretty much rest assured that the data is protected. So you have to really layer security uh, as much as possible from data creation to again, data destruction or, or retirement as the case may be. And then almost under every, every domain, it, documentation of, of the policy and, and the action, right? Everything needs to be documented. Yeah, the process, the process you, yeah. you have to document, you're, tra you're tracking, uh, you're documenting when it's done, who, who did it, when, you know, that, that kind of thing. And it's not something you tell the auditor that, oh, um, we just started doing that or it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. It's not an excuse to, or a reason that is sound enough to pass a control, right? Um, question I, I'm throwing out there, under this domain and, and that type of documentation, what is the retention requirement? Is there one set by CMMC? 
Do I have to keep that for it's, a year, seven years? It's customer's business priority, I mean, uh, uh, prerogative, right? So, uh, you know, uh, whether there is a requirement set, it's up to the organization in question, it's up to the uh, regulatory drivers for, the, for that business. So, uh, and also you have to consider state requirement like California, for example, which is pretty stringent when it comes to uh, security. Uh, precautions that need to be taken, right? So you have to factor all of those things in in your data re retention policy. Oh, I'm not sure if this was exactly what was asked, but if you're, if there's a question of how long should I keep records showing my compliance for assessment, right? Uh, generally, that's going to be you want to keep it until your next assessment, which would normally be three years, right? So. Uh, we're all concerned about our first CMMC assessment, but at some point we're going to need to get another CMMC assessment to continue, right? And it is absolutely uh, not just a possibility, but likely that the assessor will, will want to see proof that you have been doing uh, what you're supposed to do the entire time since your last assessment, which is three years. Great. Appreciate that. Um, I'm going to jump into Slido. Um, these are more generic. Let's see. Um, so that those are the questions I had for um, the media protection. Is there any other input? And we'll get into some more generic questions that have been thrown up in the Slido. Yeah, around media protection. I mean, I, I just look at this from the years, you know, 15 years, sales consulting on cybersecurity, um, you know, the sales guy, uh, they go in the office, they need a cubicle, they, they need filing. Um, I don't know how many times I've grabbed a, a, an old filing cabinet that's been sitting around in cubes, business has been around forever, and lo and behold, it's like a risk assessment report, network diagram. Do you know all the treasure trove of information that's in your environment that might contain CUI that's kind of gone lost? Or do you have somebody that has actually gone through and, and making sure that, you know, that information is found, but also disposed of in the proper way? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, tools like a, a good file integrity management system can help keep track of that. Um, obviously, people printing it up and putting it in the file cabinets, um, you should have a policy and, um, and tracking mechanism on that as well. But um, some, there's definitely technologies to assist. All right, um, let's get into a couple Mira, of them. Um, go ahead. Has a question. Right, so oh, before yeah, we ahead. move on from media protection, um, there's a nuance that uh, everyone should know, which is on the whole, the media protection domain is not talking about internal hard drives in computers and it's not talking about mobile phone hard drives. Um, it's talking about things that you can uh, walk away with without using a screwdriver, right? Um, there's one exception, which is the very first practice, uh, which is the one that, you know, sanitize system media before you release it for recycling or whatnot. Um, that one does call out internal hard drives and computers but the rest of the, the practices of media protection, uh, if, if you need a screwdriver to get at the media, it's not, it's not what's targeted by that. 
So Amir, when you said the exception, would then like a printer be one of those exceptions where, where it has an internal memory or, or and or a hard drive where it could store some of the last things that it printed? For that first practice, uh, MP1118, which is a level one practice, that says sanitize or destroy information system media containing FCI or CUI before disposal. Uh, that does specifically include hard drives such as that would include like printer media. Um, but the rest of them, they're not, they're not really talking about that. They're talking about thumb drives, DVDs, and paper generally. Great. What, so what about um, when an employee or someone um, gain access to a CUI or uh, sensitive information and they actually download it, download that information to their personal device, let's say a directory, for example, or a file for that matter that has sensitive information. How do we, how do we, uh, how do we address sanitizing that individual personal device that touches the uh, corporate, uh, corporate data that is sensitive or CUI? So generally personal devices like that, if they take their home laptop and they plug it into your network, that would be um, the access control domain where you're preventing uh, external information systems from getting to your data uh, or connecting to your, to your network. Um, uh, in that case, I would consider it a, an incident, pretty major incident. Yeah, so, so in my opinion, if we're talking about, you, you absolutely correct, uh, Amira. Uh, but in my opinion, if you're talking about media protection, then you have to really address how information is really moving between media. What you know to the SA, what kind of control you have in place to make sure that you know that information doesn't spill into a different type of uh, device. Because if if the pol if there is no access uh, access control or there is there isn't a policy that restricts you know people using devices that are outside of the scope of the accreditation boundary, right? So that there is the opportunity for uh, the users or uh, anyone for that matter, right? Basically uh, 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 removing or downloading data from the protected network, thereby, therefore you have to address, in my opinion, the fact that uh, uh, how you actually avoid or prevent people from you know, putting data into, into their personal devices. And when they do, how do you sanitize that information? Because sending email to people, uh, to, to somebody's uh, Gmail account, for example, that email now left the accreditation boundary. So the question is, how do you sanitize that information that is out there? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not really, you know, it's not that cut and dry. You have to really adopt the, uh, the requirement of CMMC or NIST to your business, right? Uh, and, and address how information can be well protected. Yeah, but I was kind of uh, add that yeah, you, you can only control what you have control with. Once you get into the personal devices, it's kind of outside of the scope. So if you actually have a data that's leaked to the, or actually get extracted to uh, personal devices due to the you know, misbehavior of your staff or employees or stolen data, that's probably going to just have to activate the incident response plan, you know, and uh, figure out how you actually deal with that situation. Because, um, if you if you are talking about the access control, you know, preventing any USB can actually just plug into any 
anywhere in the system, anywhere on the network to be able to download. Yeah, those are network access control practices that will address that. But um, yeah, if they are intentionally doing something bad to the company, yeah, that's very hard to. It may not be intentionally bad, right? It may be, it may be, uh, you know, convenience, right? It may be a busy uh, uh, financial accountant basically saying, you know what, I'm going to work on this uh, Excel spreadsheet at home on my home computer, so therefore I'm going to email it to my Gmail account, right? So, and, so something it, really important to understand about CMMC is that every single practice is different. When you first read through it, you might go, no, it's talking about the same thing over and over again. Why does it just keep saying the same thing over and over again? They're actually all different. They're all different ways of trying to handle risk. Um, and you know, during this conversation, um, I've thought of five or six practices, not in the media protection domain, right? But in the access control domain, the personnel screening domain, the awareness and training domain, right? Um, you know, even locking configuration management, reducing privilege on devices to the least functionality so that they don't have the ability to print or write data unless you need them to, right? There's so many different ways that CMMC tries to prevent risk and stop threats, but it's all coming at from very small, discrete things that you can do, you know, 130 or more, right, uh, to do to try and prevent the risk. You're on mute, Dave. Thank you. My turn to, 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 to do that. Um, we're coming up on two minutes here, top of the hour. Um, Want to be respectful of all the guests that joined us. Uh, keep this at an hour. Uh, any last comments from our panelists? You guys have been great today. David, you're on You got it. Go ahead, you know, everybody has to have their turn doing that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when making your documentation, uh, you know, really, it's it's going to help you during the assessment process to make sure that you have a responsibility matrix of who's responsible for certain areas of that CUI protection um, in order to be able to articulate, you know, and show that okay, well, this person or this department and this individual has responsibility over media protection, this person has responsibility or this department has responsibility over, you know, access controls. So it's one of those things that um, it seems like a trivial uh, thing to, to look at, um, but it is something that will assist organizations with making sure that they have a clear understanding and foundation of, okay, am I covering all my bases? Appreciate it, David. Well, that brings us to the top of the hour. I want to thank all of our panelists for joining us in this five-part series. Uh, to everybody that's listening, uh, we will continue doing other interesting uh, webinars every two weeks. So uh, stay tuned, watch your emails. There'll be additional ones coming up on various topics. Um, so we appreciate everybody joining us today. Um, and as your uh, MC, David Jones, I'm Vice President of Stealth. Uh, thank you for joining us and have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, thank you. Thanks.